You're about to hear my conversation with our investment strategist, Brent Joyce. We talk all about the Russian Ukraine crisis, what it means to economic markets. I think you're going to find this conversation to be enlightening, very sobering, and really an incredibly accurate source of analysis. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKinsey Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be back with our investment strategist, Brent Joyce. Brent, welcome back. Hi, Matt. Lots of uh, difficult things to talk about uh... This week on the podcast, it's shocking, shameful, you know, horrible that it's just under two weeks ago that you and I um, did our last recording and it was just at the outset of this conflict and the situation has deteriorated since that time, as everyone's well aware. And obviously, we're going to talk about um, capital markets and economic impacts today, but all of that, you know, is secondary to the humanitarian cost and our, our hearts and prayers are with uh, with the victims here. I appreciate that you, you leading with that. That's uh, exactly the sentiment that we need to uh, start with. Um, that said, maybe I can uh, turn it over to you. It is uh, March 8th because things are moving fairly quickly. Uh, and turn it over to you to give a, a current your view of, uh, of where we are from both the conflict point of view, the sanctions, and then, of course, the economic uh, impacts. Yeah, things are moving Rapidly, for sure, both um, in the crisis itself, the response on the part of um, Western alliances, Western nations, we'll call it broadly. Uh, today, interestingly, you mentioned March the 8th, we do have the announcement that the United States will move to uh, bring energy into the sanctions. Uh, it looks like the United Kingdom is going to follow suit on that as well. And, and Europe um, not, and probably because they really don't have a lot of choice in the very short term right. to pursue that policy. Um, Canada, some people might might be aware, uh, moved uh, against um, Russian oil imports uh, a number of days ago, but we haven't been importing oil from Russia, so that uh, was um, more symbolic than anything else. The biggest concern that we have outside of the conflict, the crisis, but but the knock-on effects and from a global context is to talk about how this is going to damage global growth. And the notion that the closer you are geographically to the conflict, the, the more pain and suffering you're going to uh, endure uh, still remains the same. We talked a bit about that last time in terms of central bank responses. Uh, now that this has escalated, uh, we've seen a much sharper response in capital markets. So we can have a conversation today on a number of topics, and I think one way to frame it is to try to understand what has happened, what may happen, what um, the implications of are for that. And I, we try to stay focused on not timing what might happen with the conflict. That's impossible. But there are sure. certainly themes that are developing now that I believe have medium to longer term implications, even if all of the hostilities were to end tomorrow. And, you know, um, that would certainly be a, a wonderful uh, thing to have happen. Um, but there's certainly impacts now, shifts in supply chains, shifts in attitudes, quite frankly, toward energy security, 
you know, right. defense security on the part of Europe, um, geopolitical implications that we need to be mindful of. All of those things, through the lens as an investor now, are about costs. How much have costs gone up? Clearly, we know the impacts on commodities. We've got oil prices now in the 120 uh, range. Natural gas right. prices in Europe have um, five, six hundred percent increases uh, from uh, from levels um, of, a, of several months ago. These are very sharp shocks, and we can talk a bit about the implications uh, for that. And so, what is it, the impact on economic growth, and how long might that last? And then the last thing that we always have to ask ourselves as investors is where have capital markets moved uh, in light of what uh, they believe they know in what is a, a very foggy situation. That's great, Brent. So maybe we can start with the shock of uh, natural gas prices, oil prices, and broadly inflation. Uh, one of the things that we've spent so much time talking about over the past year, 14 months, um, is inflation in general. And, uh, and we entered this conflict with very high inflation, certainly uh, over the past decade. Um, what does the shock uh, for uh, oil and gas prices mean to that inflation story? Uh, and, and what are some of the risks that come along with that? Yeah, it's not good. We, you know, you've asked me about stagflation and I've said it's boomflation, right? We had price increases right. because of a very robust economic backdrop, the reopening, all of that that folks are familiar with. This is not that. This is an exogenous supply shock. Russia is 10% of global oil production. They're big, big suppliers, obviously, to Western Europe. The oil piece has some uh, off-ramps, if you will. The natural gas part is more difficult. Natural gas is viewed in Europe as a transition uh, fossil fuel on the road to um, reducing their, their carbon footprint. And, right. you know, Russia's 11% of the Earth's landmass. So they're going to have lots of or a significant chunk of a lot of things that come out of the ground. Oil's one, gas is another. When you talk about base metals, uh, different uh, chemicals that go into, into modern uh, life's uh, amenities. But for natural gas, it doesn't move around very well. It is best served through a pipeline, and that becomes a regional story. So natural right. gas prices uh, have, have moved higher in, in other parts of the world, but nothing, nothing, nothing like we're seeing in Europe. And the reliance on natural gas in Europe uh, for the, their energy supply is significant. And this is, um, this is your grandfather's uh, uh, energy shock for the Europeans. I don't see how it is... Um, it's very difficult to, to say how can households and businesses function with these kinds of hundreds of euros a month for the average household hit to their uh, to their energy bill that um, is going to dampen economic growth. And so there's that immediate impact in Europe. And what is Europe's footprint in what we think about for global economic activity? And then there right. is the knock to consumer confidence, business confidence, simply the notion of business as usual in Europe. So clearly it is not business as usual while the conflict rages. But like I said, even if um, hostilities were to stop tomorrow, this clearly is now uh, brings up the question of security of supply chains, uh, who can I do business with, how do we finance that? Uh, and sanctions are uh, 
harsh and they're biting and the addition of oil, even if it's still somewhat symbolic, um, is important longer term for, uh, for Russia and hopefully this uh, will bite. Unlike bullets, the sanctions will take much longer time for them to have an impact. And all of that just feeds into cost curves uh, for the world. And as you get closer to Europe, those cost curves move higher. A lot of talk about, uh, we get back to stagflation. And yeah, the, the, the concern around stagflation that I have, um, to be honest, largely dismissed up until this point has now uh, gone up in, uh, in our modeling and something that we are very much thinking about. For Europe, I think it is, um, we, have to, we have to consider the notion that we, we have a recession scenario in Europe. For the rest of the world, I think there is, it's still early to be using uh, the recession word. And some of that is we have to remember that global growth enters this crisis on a very solid footing. We were right. we were uh, anticipating the reopening trade and the and the pent up demand being released and the inventory restocking cycle, uh, all of that being positive economic activity to recover and and uh, and mend and heal from the pandemic. So there is at least room for global growth to absorb a bit of this blow, but the impacts in Europe. Uh, the longer this goes on, the harder it is going to be uh, going to be to dismiss those as um, something that the European economy can absorb. The, the shocks are pretty significant. Maybe we'll stay with uh, within Europe uh, and then and then sort of explore the rest uh, after that. But particularly on the ECB, are they able to respond to uh, some of these uh, crises? And there was talk earlier this year about perhaps having a, a, a raise, uh, raising a cycle starting this year. Is that completely off the table? Is there any other tools that they can um, reach for to, to help uh, European nations at this time? Yeah, I think any consideration around tightening uh, monetary policy in Europe is off the table until we get greater clarity on what's happening with the shock to the system. Um, right. Yeah, Europe choosing to stay out of the oil and gas sanctions, like I said, they have little choice uh, when 30% uh, of your energy is coming from Russia. you um, The sanctions can sometimes hit those that are imposing the sanctions more than it does those that are receiving sure. the sanctions, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a dangerous game all around. And so the rest of the world moving against that is one thing, but Europe, Europe's not. Uh, because the economies certainly just wouldn't sustain it. And like I said, gas being a regional market, you can't easily get it from somewhere else. Longer term, though, you have to think about the costs that are going to go up now to rejig those supply chains. So we, we should right. expect that uh, European energy security is going to become as important as uh, climate is. Uh, and that's for everybody on the planet now. We have externalities to the carbon we choose to consume as human beings. And those right. externalities need to be priced appropriately. The climate is one we've talked about for many years. It needs to be uh, more appropriately priced for how we consume carbon. But the externalities of uh, geopolitics and uh, the weaponization of energy has obviously come back and front and center now. And so whether it is, is energy or other imports from Russia, um, getting them insured, those cargos insured, getting those cargos from A to B, those costs have gone up. And that's not going to change uh, simply because uh, the shooting stops. 
And so that's a, uh, a medium term crimp on growth. But what markets are moving to discount today is the notion of what's happening in the next sort of eight to 18 months, right? Um, right. It takes years and years and billions of dollars to build LNG terminals. And, and if Europe's going to need natural gas for the next 10 to 15 to 20 years, perhaps, we can do that and they can source uh, more secure uh, supplies of energy from, from other places. It just takes time to do that. And I think we have to, to recognize that the moves around the energy infrastructure in, in Europe have been playing out since the financial crisis, whether that's uh, a move away from nuclear energy, uh, the move toward um, uh, renewables, and so on. And so these are, are we're in a short-term squeeze on uh, particularly mm -hmm. for Europe. Just in, in context though, so let's, let's play out the picture that Europe falls into a recession because right. of this energy squeeze. What does that mean for us as global investors? Well, we can think about the period 2011, 2012, 2013. We can think about the period 2018, 2019. And right. when we look at um, European economic activity in those, during those times, it's chronically in recession. You mm -hmm. know, we have um, for most of 11, 12 and 13, Europe is, uh, is in recession, more so than there's right. any growth. It's um, an on again, off again, one quarter negative, one quarter slightly positive, back and forth for about a year and a half in, in 2018 and the first part of 2019. They slipped back into recession post-pandemic where uh, most of the rest of the world was able to stave that off. So Europe being in recession isn't a new story for global investors to, to deal with. Unfortunately, when we look at global equities through that period in time, it is this sideways, choppy, volatile periods that we've witnessed over the past 12 years. These have come with central banks in transition. So we certainly had lots of uh, Eurozone uh, uh, monetary issues in, in 11, 12, and 13, right? The, the Euro crisis, right. if you will. Of course. We've had um, bottoming of the inventory cycle through those periods. So it, it's, it, it's not just Europe. We had Chinese uh, bubble bursting, you know, in, in 2015, 2016. And so through all of that, if you are a long-term investor and you look at the S&P 500 or the TSX or, you know, broadly the MSCI World Index, it was a pause, a sideways choppiness that lasts 18 months, certainly 8 to 12 months. Uh, sure. And this shock could be setting us into that... Um, uh, that kind of, of an environment. Uh, for North America, our uh, impact because of our ability to generate energy uh, homegrown, particularly natural gas, we have, we have lots of that, uh, is more insulated. It is, it is the inflation knock-on that we have to worry about. And certainly the world was expecting Europe to contribute with about 4% global growth this year. If that gets completely uh, eroded, uh, which I think is a, a pretty... Um, conservative uh, scenario, right? Like the growth might get cut in half. We still might get 2% European uh, GDP growth. Sure. We, we still have a reopening that's happening in Europe, uh, a recovery right. from COVID. So it doesn't mean it has to go to zero, but we, ha we have to shave now uh, corporate earnings, uh, most especially for stock markets uh, because of that impact. But it's, it's not nearly the footprint and it isn't the same kind of a shock as uh, as would be if it were U.S. growth or even Chinese growth uh, in terms of its contribution uh, uh, to the world uh, economic pie.
if you will. Well, let's move uh, maybe over to North America um, and, and talk about implications for for the North American markets. Um, you know, the Canadian market when you when you look at the the state of the world, uh, we produce a lot of the things that Russia produces, uh, and those things are now more expensive. So there is some sort of offset uh, with uh, higher prices being enjoyed by some of our our corporations and expanding into labor force that type of thing. What's your view on on Canada and the U.S. Um, given uh, the crisis in Ukraine and everything that we've just talked about. Yeah, so Canada is an obvious one, right? Uh, higher commodity prices are still a net uh, beneficiary uh, here in Canada, as um, as painful it is for us uh, consumers uh, at the pump. For the economy as a whole, we're net exporters of, of like you said, many of the things, including wheat and corn uh, that, um, that the world relies on from Russia. We are a commodity superstore. They are a commodity superstore. Right, uh, we mentioned landmass uh, on the planet, and, and Canada's up there as well. Right, so where where you need to find rocks, you need to have earth, and we've got lo- loads of it. And the Canadian equity market has uh, has been a, a very much an outperformer through this piece, reflecting that. Um, the U.S. is in a very different position. There's lots of talk about the 1970s and oil embargoes and things of that nature. And, and those are reasonable things to, to look at, I think, in terms of how to think about this. But we do need to adjust for how um, prices have changed and certainly the landscape of the U.S. economy has shifted dramatically. So two things there. On the consumption side, the amount of energy that it takes for the U.S. to squeeze out a dollar of, of economic activity, a dollar of GDP is how we measure it, has the amount of energy has fallen dramatically in the last 15, 30, and 60 years. So this is this is not your grandfather's oil crisis in terms of, of oil embargoes of the 1970s where we've got gas guzzling uh, you know, V8 engines and all that sort of stuff. The, we have become a lot more efficient in our use of energy. The problem is we've not necessarily reduced the amount of energy that we consume. We've chose to do, uh, you know, to, to benefit in other ways because of that. So on the consumption side, the the impact isn't nearly as hard. For the U.S. as well, we're not talking about now a country that needs to import 19, 18, 19, 20 million barrels a day of energy because they produced, you know, just a very, a little trickle. They're now one of the largest energy producers on the planet. And so, yes, they do consume, uh, you know, 18, 19, 20 million barrels a day of oil, Russia's contribution to that is is uh, pretty small. It's three percent in straight up barrels. It's upwards of seven or eight percent of, of U.S. supply for refined um, uh, petroleum products. So it's it's not minuscule, but it isn't certainly anything compared to the uh, the footprint it is in Europe. Um, right. And you have then the similar sort of of rotation, if you will, around winners and losers. So U.S. households lose just like Canadian households lose with. Four and five dollar a gallon uh, gasoline, and, and uh, you know, closing in on two bucks a liter here, but um, that wealth is at least being transferred more internally within the U.S. economy than in the 1970s, where it was being shipped out of the country. And and again, that is a bit more of what Europe is faced with. On the inflation footprint, you think about every ten dollar increase in oil, roughly different. Um, uh, analyses that, that we've been reading is just under a half a percent contribution to headline inflation. 
right? Okay. So we're in the one and a half percent range. If you think about 30 bucks being tacked onto oil here, that has to, to sustain and be persistent. Uh, and sure. like I said, there are off ramps for oil. None of them are particularly attractive, I don't think. For sure, the, you know, we're trying to, to reduce our carbon consumption as a planet uh, in order to um, have climate goals. And, uh, and in the near term, there's nothing going to change on that front in, in days or weeks. But what could change in days or weeks is the energy security side of oil consumption. And we're trading um, bad actors for bad actors. Let's, let's be honest, right? So if we allow Iran to start pumping oil yeah, because we do a nuclear sure. deal with them. If we uh, there's there's room for Venezuela to put a million, maybe a million and a half barrels. Same with Iran. You know, somewhere right. we need to come up with between reduced consumption and uh, offsetting supply. Right, there are many millions of barrels. You know, Russia consumes some of its own oil. Certainly, other uh, Europe's going to buy some. Japan has not gone on on an embargo. China is going to continue to buy Russia's oil. So hard to, hard to know the number, but it's it's certainly going to be three, four, five million barrels of oil that the world needs to find somewhere else, and and that's that's gettable, right? Saudi Arabia can do a bit of that. Iran, Venezuela, U.S. shale's got room to ramp up production, um, and again, these are things that could happen weeks, months, quarters, um, and, and so this this oil at one hundred and twenty to one hundred and fifty, perhaps. Um, right. perhaps is, um, isn't something that we need to deal with for many, many years. The other thing we have to think about here, Matt, is that the world has functioned with energy prices over $100 a barrel in the not-too-distant past. So again, that 2011, right. 2012, 2013, even, even into 2014 period, we had uh, crude oil prices that were around $100 a barrel. And if you inflation adjust that for... You know, six, seven, eight years later, and you you have had some wage growth uh, on on top of that. These are oil prices that are eye popping um, and certainly going to pinch. But the share of wallet uh, for households and businesses that's going to energy, and again, we're talking outside of Europe predominantly here, uh, is right. something that we've seen before. But it is a damper on economic activity. It is a tax on the consumer. It's certainly something that he's got to be soaked up either by households or by profit margins. Uh, within within corporations, and so the question to ask: We're now seventeen percent change down in the euro stock six hundred in local currency, approaching bear market territory in U.S. dollars. If you measure European equities, uh, in and around the nineteen percent range um, down, uh, does that price in an extended recession for Europe? Probably not, but it's 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 a long way toward it. Um, similarly, North America, Canada, we talked about being a beneficiary through this and uh, and being able to step up with commodities, and that's a welcome thing. U.S. to some extent as well. And so North American markets that are in correction territory, which even two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that that was, looked like something that needed to have, have to happen anyhow for equity markets. Right. Um, there's there's um, no reason here to think that capital markets aren't moving in stride as developments uh, unfold. The sanctions themselves bring on other issues that, that we should probably talk about in terms of, of uh, internal stresses within the global financial system. Great. Yes, let's, let's, um, let's turn to that. Uh, I'm assuming by the stresses within the, the financial system, you're, you're um, 
alluding to the Russian uh, financial system being sort of excluded from the, the global financial system. Maybe talk a little bit about uh, what has happened and, and what implications you think uh, that may have. Yeah, so we got to pay for Russia's uh, commodities, uh, and uh, you need a financial system to do that. And we we wrote in our week of this week that financial crises um, over the past decades uh, often have come out of what's called the butterfly effect, where a small right. thing happens some corner of the world and it, and it cascades through. Uh, and that is something we need to be mindful of, as uh, Russia does owe people money for for bond payments, and. Um, and you just need the general functioning of, uh, of funding markets, if you will. European banks are most exposed here. They've been hit very hard on their share prices to reflect that exposure. Uh, we're looking at credit spreads in Europe that are widening out. That's appropriate, given that we could be headed for recession there. But right. beyond that, and again, it comes back to this, this does appear to be largely contained as a, as a European uh, crisis. Credit spreads in North America are, are behaving Funding markets globally are still functioning, so the ring fencing of Russia and the and the tightening of these very sanctions and the global financial system being one of the tools to do that um, does seem to be something that the global uh, capital markets are capable of digesting for now. But it bears close watch as uh, somebody who might be owed some money who's not Russia, uh, you know, a hedge fund, what have you, uh, you know, we need to be careful with that. But Russia's footprint. As much as it's very large in the commodity space, it's not that huge in terms of um, its contribution to global GDP. It's the 11th largest economy, even though it's the single biggest country geographically. It, it punches well below its weight for uh, its population. You know, countries that are a half or a third the size in population to Russia's 140 odd million people uh, have similar um, GDP footprints. Uh, Canada's number 10 um, for curiosity seekers, uh, Russia being number 11. And it's the way that it's been already severed because of Crimea sanctions. I think Russia turning inward with trying to strengthen its domestic position uh, with the expectation that this type of thing was going to happen if it misbehaved. Um, so that footprint has been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. This is not your... Uh, your Russian uh, ruble crisis of, of decades uh, gone by. Right. Um, that's great context, uh, Brent. Um, we've covered a lot during this conversation. Uh, certainly, um, it sounds to me, if I were to summarize it, that uh, markets seem like they've done a fairly good job pricing in what is in front of us. Uh, of course, with conflicts like this, uh, the, the tails get fatter, uh, as they say, uh, because uh, war is hard to predict and, and, and things can happen. Uh, what will you be looking for in the coming weeks uh, as you as you uh, look forward towards uh, the conclusion, hopefully, of this? Yeah, the end of the ceasing of hostilities, obviously, front and center, and, and markets would rally uh, on that news for sure. Uh, but there are these medium to longer term impacts where I, you can't unring the bell on um, the, the sort of pariah state now that Russia, um, barring a regime change, I guess, uh, uh, finds itself. And so the rest of the world, if we are going to get serious about um, you know, ring fencing and, and putting these sanctions and following through on them, this uh, appears to be certainly the safer from a, a cost of life humanitarian standpoint than escalating the conflict militarily. Um, and so the rest of the world is watching how the West responds here. I think the response has been sharp and solid and uh, in solidarity. 
and um, pragmatic, I guess, given you know some of the choices that we can't make uh, or Europe can't make. And so we need to watch how that unfolds and where the longer term lingering implications lie. And there's many, many tentacles to keep track of. For the moment, still the same advice. Stick to your long-term plan. If that plan is um, laid out and, and suits your goals and objectives, the um, capital markets are, are functioning uh, through this uh, crisis. And as much as you can't um, time or predict the outcomes of, of these events, we've certainly gone to de-risk uh, some of our portfolios. Uh, we would um, ask folks to remain calm and, uh, and not make any rash knee-jerk reactions uh, in the heat of, of these emotions. The reason you have a long-term plan is precisely for uh, situations like this. And, and investors uh, need to stay well balanced through here. Trying to swing for what appear to be price dislocations is not what we would recommend at this juncture. Um, patience is, is the, uh, the call of the day. Brent, sage advice uh, as always, and particularly right now. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to walk through this. You're welcome, man. content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 